you know, key of A and key of E are friends. You know what I mean? And they're all hanging out. And the key of A brought one of his buddies to the party, which was D. And I was like, all right, well, we don't know you. You're not in our friend group normally, but you can, you can be here. You know, it's ambiguous whether you're our friend, but we'll, we'll accept you. Song Destruct podcast, where we reverse engineer the most influential songs in history. This is a tightly formatted show where we dive into the mechanics of songwriting and production, deconstructing chord structure, song architecture, production design and arrangements. We rate and review the effectiveness of these song elements, and we evaluate what we can learn from them so that we can become better songwriters and designers. Today's show is Jumping Jack Flash versus Remedy. Remedy by the Black Crows, Jumpin' Jack Flash by the Rolling Stones. And the theme of the show is hiding the key. So I'll go into a little bit more about what I mean by that, but I'm talking about the the key of the song and what it even means to be in a particular key, because these two songs, although they look like general blues riff songs, are both pulling one over on the listener into believing that they're in one key and not the other. So we'll talk about all that, but uh, welcome to 2020, Ryan. Have How have you been? It's been too long, Wes. I've missed you. I've missed the podcast. I hope you had a good Christmas. In a year. I did. And did you get any fan mail over the holidays from the show? I, I couldn't handle it all. So I had to hire <laughs> an assistant to open it. Well, I wonder how much we were missed. It is February 4th. <laughs> we meant to take off maybe three, four weeks. But then at the beginning of January, I, I kind of pointed at you and said, we're taking another month because... For a few reasons. One, I wanted to get a little bit more perspective on how to make this show better and whether it was even needed in the marketplace. And I did conclude it's needed in the marketplace. Well, yeah. And the uh, the groundhog saw his shadow the other day, which always means there will be more podcasts. Yes. Had it gone the other direction, we wouldn't be here right now. <laughs> so where we're at as of right now is we're going to maybe turn this into a monthly show. Now, if we start to see a whole lot of reviews, either on Spotify or Apple or wherever you leave your reviews, if we start to see them there, hey, we could turn this into bi-weekly. We'll never go back to weekly though, because just too, too difficult on the schedule to maintain that on a weekly basis. And I want to be consistent. So right now we're going to go to monthly. Maybe we'll throw in a couple bonus episodes here and there because they're, they're not too hard to do, but on a weekly basis, they're killing me, man. All mm. right. Before we get into the music, uh, one other announcement. Echospire, the software that I wanted to design, I'm going to go ahead and put that on the back burner. I told Ryan over the uh, holidays, I said, you know what? I don't know. I don't know if this software needs to exist in the marketplace. Number one, I think be- becoming a songwriter or landing a job or, or selling a song is such a, such a rare event. You can almost equate it to a lottery. And I don't know if there needs to be a factory whereby everybody's putting in so much work reviewing other people's uh, songs and, you know, putting in how I imagined it, one, two, three hours a day curating each other's work, all competing for a lottery ticket. Now, maybe Ryan can convince me otherwise, but I kind of ran it past several people and they were like, yeah, I agree with you. It is a lottery ticket. Therefore, it doesn't really matter how hard you work at it. 
it will come down to a certain amount of, you know, just pulling some melody that resonates with millions of people and being lucky enough to get your song listened to by the right person at the right time. There's just far too much luck involved to try to make this into a, a, a craft that you can take to the marketplace. What do you think about that, Ryan? One of the things I thought about would be a lot of songwriters that I know aren't looking for feedback because they have some sort of delusion that the song, they just want to hear people say it's great. Right. Some are objective and some want feedback and ideas in this, but then... Echo Spire would have been the exact opposite of that. It would have been like, let me let me crush your bubble <laughs> on a daily basis. Well, I think the, the only issue that might occur in that scenario is they wouldn't keep coming back. Maybe they'd upload some songs and they'd get kind of like critical feedback and then they would disappear because all they really wanted was somebody to tell them that they were good. Right. And that's just, that's the delusion of the, of the artist, right? Yeah. It sucks to be negative, but you know what? Let's, let's be real here. And the average artist is probably somebody who is a little bit too inward facing and they're not prepared for the objective feedback that comes, the soul crushing feedback that comes with a platform that introduces you to thousands of strangers. I mean, see YouTube exhibit a for how to receive a lot of critical feedback. As a songwriter too, there's plenty of channels to submit your songs and get feedback. You could go to NSAI, you could be an NSAI member. They'll review your songs. They'll tell you, you know, and or you could just try to get them to some kind of music publisher, right? And they'll tell you they're not good enough, or I mean, unless they are, but right, if, if they'll tell you they're good, enough, and a lot of people just can't handle that, or they can't fix the problem. So they're either weak on they're either weak on music, which could you know usually means melody, or they're weak on lyrics, um, or they're weak on a couple other issues. And if they unless they have the ability to go fix those. Uh, so having said all that, I pulled the plug, I pulled the plug on my baby. It'd been alive for about two years. Um, and I was really getting serious about it, which was the whole reason why I started the podcast. And then I started thinking about it. I'm like, you know what? I could put more time into some other things that probably have a better, uh, chance at actually getting off the ground. And that's what I'm doing now. So, uh, one of those is a YouTube channel. In fact, I'm going to try to put this podcast on YouTube with a couple of animated characters because there's now some cool software out there where it's fairly autoplay, where I can just plug our voices into a couple of puppets and make them start talking at each other. And I don't have to do that much. So another project will be another YouTube channel that off topic of music. Oh, really? Yeah, it's going to be cool, man. 2020, uh, the software out there that allows you to do custom animations relatively easily is making my uh, my creative juices bubble. Okay, I want to hear more about it. Yep. Um, the thing about the thing about Echo Spire is, I remember it was you pulled the plug once before. Yep. On the and then it came back, and then I thought it was back for good, but <laughs> it's never back for good, <laughs> and it's never dead for good. It's it's the nature of creativity. Uh, I pulled the plug on it for nine months after hitting my head against the wall with a couple of partners, and then when I resurrected it. Uh, back in September, six, five, six months ago, I decided to go go ahead and try to get some more, uh, partners, engineers, and anybody else who want to share the vision. And I got maybe 10 people to take my meeting and I wasn't impressed with how much they were not impressed. So Mm. with that said, I, and again, over the holidays, I started going, you know what, there's other avenues here to, to explore. I will go ahead and pull the plug on this one more time. And if it 
lives to see another day, it does. But right now it's chilling on the back burner. Okay. <laughs> All right. So talking about Jumpin' Jack Flash versus Black Crow's Remedy, uh, right off the top, let's just get to the background of these bands uh, before we talk about the songs. So Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, one of the best songwriting duos right right after, literally on the heels of Lennon McCartney, although I don't think that they get half as much credit as Lennon McCartney. Really? Yeah. What do you disagree with? I would think they, if you look at the, 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 just the sheer number of great songs, Mm -hmm. it's probably what, you know, a quarter of the the amount the Beatles wrote, maybe, you know, depending on how, you know, Well, let me provide the numbers. Sure. Uh, Let me give you the numbers. So we got eight number one singles compared to Lennon McCartney, which are upwards of 32, somewhere in there. Yeah. They sold 240 million albums worldwide. That's competing with the Beatles. They had 120 singles, so they had tons of singles. They just didn't go to number one. Uh, plenty, mm. plenty of good ones. I mean, even Jumpin' Jack Flash only went to number three in the U.S. chart, despite it being one of the most popular songs of, of their band, but also one of the most popular songs of all time. And it did not make it to number one, at least not in America. It did in the U.K. They had 30 studio albums. They had 23 live albums. Quick factoid, uh, Grateful Dead, unsurprisingly, has the most live albums. So as soon as I saw that Rolling Stones had 23, and I do tend to think of Rolling Stones as well as Black Crows as being like the classic touring uh, blue collar rock band, whereas I don't give that to Beatles. Maybe in the first few years of their career, it was that way, but they quickly turned into a studio band. Rolling Stones always kept it as a blue collar working class band. I thought, you know what, who has who has beat them in terms of the live albums? Grateful Dead. They have 167. But here's the interesting part. 150 of those 167 live concerts only surfaced after they disbanded in 1995 following Jerry Garcia's death. <laughs> so the vast majority were spread just by people handing out cassettes and CDs. And that's kind of when we were growing up in high school. So I kind of saw how that happened firsthand. It was almost like the original internet or the original YouTube or the original way that I saw like people trading music. It was, yeah. it, was it was ahead of Napster. So uh, having said all that, back to your point, uh, they don't really compete at least on paper, they don't really compete with the Beatles in terms of how many number ones. However, yes, they have so many compilation albums because their music tends to be a little bit more alt rock rather than mainstream rock, which who's to say which one's better? Me and you probably like alt rock a whole lot more than we do mainstream rock throughout the decades. And, you know, this the sound does change from the 60s to the 70s, 80s, 90s to today. But that comes down to taste. You're calling you're calling the Beatles alt rock. No, I'm saying that uh, Rolling Stones are more alt rock than Beatles are. You know, this argument comes up: uh, <clears throat> who's better, the Beatles or the Stones? So the fact that that's even like a common thing that people say mm-hmm. is is uh, I feel like the Stones are getting enough credit, even the fa- the fact that that's a common common debate. But like I always say, well, or you might say that the stones especially since they're still going uh at you know 75 years old or something like i think it's okay to say something along the lines of oh you know how to solve the divide and say well maybe the stones are the best rock band of all time beatles are the best pop band of all time yeah yeah that's often time in fact i think it's me who says that (laughs) i I guess we both say it but uh well, and by pop, I just mean not only just popular music, but 
a lot of their songs are poppy, you know, mm-hmm. and then a lot of their songs, and then there's a song that sounds like Helter Skelter. It's they didn't, they weren't confined to one format, you know, in the same way that even the song today. What's more Rolling Stones than Jumpin' Jack Flash? Like that's their sound. They right. veered off a little bit to try to follow the trends of psychedelic mid to late mid to late sixty stuff, but Jumpin' Jack Flash is what they're known for. That sound, Exile on Main Street, that whole album, that kind of thing. Right. Which is their darker side, which is again why they weren't as mainstream as the Beatles, because even when the Beatles went dark, uh, you know, let's say around uh, the White Album, they still had songs like Birthday, which are incredibly upbeat and happy to, you know, to rescue the Helter Skelter tracks. But you listen to a Rolling Stones album, it's pretty across the board dark. They don't have songs that are suddenly "Hello Goodbye" like by the Beatles. Well, just the well, the only thing I can think of is like "Ruby Tuesday" or something. You and know, sixty-seven. I think of them as just a blues. Yep. Just they're they're so based on the blues. Yeah. In fact, they've been called supernatural Delta blues, which yeah. I found to be it, just in my research. I found that to be pretty spot on. Uh, if I were to describe their music across the decades, because they haven't changed that much since 68, they, they sort of still maintain the Jumpin' Jack Flash sound, which was their first yep. single out of the gate using this supernatural Delta blues. Real quick factoid, uh, their most performed song in concert is Jumpin' Jack Flash, which is only 1,100 times, which means that they've only performed in concert 1,100 times over the past 50 years, which is surprisingly not a lot. You would think the number would be much higher with 50 years <laughs> uh, under their belt. Uh, Brian Jones described Jumpin' Jack Flash as getting back to their funky essence. As you mentioned, in 67, they yeah. went way off the rails, kind of following the psychedelic pop sound. And... Uh, these songs, as well as the follow-up to Jumpin' Jack Flash, which was Street Fighting Man, are particularly dark. Not so much in the lyric, because they were dark before with Paint It Black. Uh, however, with the sound, and the sound is interesting to note. I'll get to this in the production uh, portion of the show, but the the producer they brought on, who was a new producer to them, had actually produced tracks by, uh, gosh, what was his name? Give me some loving guy uh, from 1966. Steve Winwood. Yeah, Steve Winwood. Give me, give me some love. Well, if you listen to that song, you're going to find a lot of characteristics inside Give Me Some Lovin', inside the engineering and the production that are utilized two years later on Jumpin' Jack Flash because it's the same producer, Jimmy Miller. Mm. So we'll go down that road in a minute. But um, so they went, they went from Jumpin' Jack Flash. To Street Fighting Man, that yeah. was the next single. Yes, man, that's a one. That's a one-two punch. Yeah, <laughs> it's their Strawberry Fields and uh, Penny Lane. <laughs> they, they found themselves. I mean, up until that point, they not to say that their music wasn't entirely original, but they were still chasing the Beatles. But they found themselves in '68. Yeah, I agree with that because they they were chasing the Beatles. I think they finally realized it was the wrong. It was the wrong uh, strategy. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, they were the antithesis to the Beatles in the sense of like, oh, they're the bad boys. The Beatles were the clean cut guys in suits. Mm-hmm. But musically, they were chasing the Beatles. Um, and then we'll be like the slightly darker version. But then, yeah, I mean, starting with that, you know, what is it? Beggar's Banquet. Mm-hmm. And then... Uh, Which what, is the album, le- keep in mind, Jumpin' Jack Flash was released ahead of Beggar's Banquet, similar to how Strawberry Fields was released ahead of Sgt. Pepper. 
Sticky Fingers is the album where I finally realized that they made great albums. I always thought of them more as a greatest hits band or like a half the album or here's the songs here or there, singles. Right. You know, oh, Under My Thumb's a good song, Ruby Tuesday. There's a, Sticky Fingers is the first one I ever listened to all the way through and said, oh, the whole freaking album's good. Right. And that brings up another point that many of their albums were essentially, you know, I'm sure hardcore Rolling Stone fans would argue with this, but they really were just singles padded with like 10 other thrown together songs. Another thing to mention is that uh, Platinum was not invented until I think like the mid 70s. Oh, if you look at the um, in 87, after all the 60s bands and 70s bands experienced the resurgence of uh, sales because of the reissues on CD. If you look at the RIAA archives, you'll quickly see Beatles go from like one time platinum to seven time platinum in 1991. And then like a few years later, it's like nine times platinum because everybody started rushing out and getting these CDs. One, they were better quality. Two, their records were worn out. Three, right. kids were buying it and probably right. their parents were rebuying it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so that was like it, the golden age to sell records. <laughs> right, right before Napster came. <laughs> yeah. That decade or so, decade of like 85 to like 2000. Right. The latest hour is just before death. <laughs> in this case. Um, so a little bit of a uh, background there on sales and whatnot. One other thing to mention uh, in regards to uh, Jumpin' Jack Flash, just like many of the last few episodes we did, it had a resurgence in 1986 with a film that borrowed uh, Jumpin' Jack Flash. Whoopi Goldberg borrowed the song. They actually featured Rolling Stones as well as Aretha Franklin's version. The movie was widely panned, but I do remember it being kind of a funny movie because of the fact that it's like a spy movie. Whoopi Goldberg is a spy in it or something. Or she has to locate a spy. And the password is the key of B flat. Hmm. So I remembered that as a kid, I, I did not think of it when I was going to look at this. Uh, as I told you through a text, I kind of chose these two songs. One, because obviously the influence of Rolling Stones on Black Crows. But two, I kind of sensed that there was something going on with the uh, with the way that Rolling Stones, despite the fact that they use simple blues chords, blues chords can oftentimes be a little bit more ambiguous than you might think. And that so happens to be the case. So we're going to talk about that. Uh, the reason why that the movie used the key of B flat is because the song is also known to have used very speed, which was a technique used at that time, you know, to speed it up or slow it down to, to make it sound different. So the song, instead of being in B, which is probably what they played it in, it's kind of slowed down to a B flat, very speed key. But in any case, I'm not talking about that very speed key. I'm talking about when the song opens up, and I'll just go into this now to kind of uh, introduce it before we jump over the fence to talking about Remedy. When the song opens up on the intro, which is B-B-E-A. So that intro is only played once in the whole song. That gen gen dun dun gen gen dun dun. So actually, in concert, the Rolling Stones don't even play the intro anymore. They just jump into the dun dun da da dun da da dun da 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 dun dun da da dun. Okay, it's interesting because it's a pretty famous opening. It is chord. It's a super famous opening, and it makes the point that I'm going to make here in just a second on confusing the key signature. So Keith Richards loves this guitar riff. He calls it his favorite Rolling Stones guitar riff. Yet Bill Wyman, the bass player, 
claims, and I believe him, claims to have written the guitar riff on a piano. You always side against Richards. <laughs> you know yeah. I do. But there's a reason why. It's because that guitar riff sounds like it's written on a piano. And Keith Richards has no story. He doesn't pretend to have a story on how he wrote it. And he hasn't uh-huh. even addressed Bill Wyman's com- comments, despite the fact that they're written down in a book. And he's had plenty of time to to say, yeah, I love that guitar riff. And sorry, Bill, it's mine. He hasn't bothered. So... With that said, the guitar riff is kind of coolly produced, coolly if that's a word. Um, that dun dun da da dun da da dun da da da. That guitar riff is played on two guitars at once. They dub two guitars. One is tuned in Nashville. What do they call it? Nashville tuning, which is basically they instead of using on the sixth, fifth, fourth guitar strings the normal gauge, they use really thin gauge so that they can tune it up really high, which is why when you hear that riff, it sounds very high pitched and it's played on an acoustic guitar. So it's a pretty cool production that they're getting away with. The second guitar that they're playing is also an acoustic. And if you listen to these, they don't sound like acoustic guitars. The second guitar is tuned to open D famously known as the Soundgarden tuning because Soundgarden plays power chords and everything. So when you tune to open D, you don't have to hold a power chord formation. You can just play everything with one finger and kind of move up and get down using power chords. In any case, a little bit of a a history there on what, what production techniques they were using. They also, Keith Richards says they borrowed that whole setup from George Jones, 1964, Uh, kind of a legend in the country music business. But for anyone listening to this who doesn't have much of a background in terms of country music, you'll oftentimes find that Rolling Stones and Beatles thought of themselves as borrowing from country music, despite the fact that we think of guitar or country being downstream from rock these days. Rock was downstream from country back in the early 60s. And that's where they learned. They did, they did not sample a lot from blues, despite the fact that that is kind of the legend. Oh, yeah, they love blues, guys. It sounds cooler than borrowing from country. But country actually had a lot of the tools in their shed that not just production-wise, but lyric-wise, as well as mm-hmm. chord-wise, that the Rolling Stones were actually borrowing from. Uh, before I go any deeper into Jumpin' Jack Flash, let's jump over the fence to Remedy by the Black Crows. Came out in 19, 1992. By the way, Jumpin' Jack Flash uh, came out in 1968 for anyone who's keeping track. So about 25, 24 years later, you got Chris Robinson and Rich Robinson, the famous dueling brothers before there was Noel and Liam Gallagher on the scene. These two brothers wrote pretty much the catalog of Black Crow's hits. And they didn't have too many. This song, Remedy, which is my favorite of theirs, peaked at number 48. This song is completely relevant to many people's lives, but it was not a chart topper by any stretch because by this time, the only thing charting at number one was Mariah Carey or Madonna or right said Fred. Southern Harmony, which was their second album, was promoted with Remedy being released. It went two times platinum. But just a few years earlier, when they released Shake Your Money Maker, that sold five million. So they were already on their way out, which this is always news to me because at the time living through it, I thought that Black Crows was on their way up. But if you look at the numbers, numbers don't lie. Shake Your Money Maker mm. sold five million. Southern Harmony sold two million. And I don't even think their third album even sold gold. Clearly, the first the first single ever was the biggest. It was the their biggest moment of commercial success. Like they never Hard talked, to handle. Uh, Hard to handle, sorry. Yeah, it's hard to handle. And then maybe she talks to angels. Like besides those two songs, 
they kind of just had nowhere to go commercially but down. I mean, they they have the sort of live jam band. Um, I know they're not a jam band, but they have that sort of live festival concert mm-hmm. uh, persona about them. Yeah, they do. And I think that's what they really wanted to do. Look at Remedy. When I was like re-listening to it this week, it's like five and a half minutes. Yeah. And as far as I can tell, I, I think they were playing all fi- all of it on MTV. I don't think they made like a single version. I could be wrong. What do you mean they made it on an MTV? The video? Yeah, I'm just saying when they played it on the radio or MTV, I, they were probably playing the whole five and a half minute oh, version. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they weren't cutting it down to three and a half. This was before NSYNC and, you know, the kind of popification of music again. I mean, oftentimes songs five minutes to six minutes got played on MTV and on the radio. Well, maybe they had the benefit of the doubt because Shake Your Money Maker had been so big. It's mm-hmm. like... Uh, you kick the door in with hard to handle and followed up with she talks to angels. And, uh, uh, there's another great song on that album. Jealous Um, again. Yeah. Jealous again. So I think the record label and radio and MTV, they're all willing to give you the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. You can have your five and a half minute song. Yeah. They're not, they wouldn't have knocked down any doors with remedy. I mean, it's a good song, but it's not, it's not the grab the attention of the world song that they would have needed. Yeah, it is my favorite of theirs, but I mean, I can't, I can't defend it that it's better than some of the other ones, but uh, let me just go ahead and give a little bit more background on Black Crows. They have eight studio albums. They've kind of broken up and reformed at least four or five different times. I think they're as of right now, actually back together again, including the two brothers. They are, they were on Stern. Okay. And they sold. And by the, and this remedy, by the way, is the intro song to the Howard Stern wrap up show. So I hear it Uh, all the time. (laughs) Well, I rest my case. It's the best song. Well, okay. Okay, so they sold 30 million albums, which is surprising because I just told you that Shaker Moneymaker sold 5 million, Southern Harmony sold 2 million, and their third, they weren't even like, they were already on their way out. But again, between live albums, various other albums and compilations and whatever, they've sold 30 million albums, so... They're rich. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, I was assuming they were at least rich. <laughs> uh, <laughs> let me just, again, compare before we go down into the architecture, the chords and the production and get uh, into the real detail. Let's compare these two bands. Um, they're both basically celebrating roots music. So we, you can call it blues. You can call it whatever you want. But ultimately, it boils down to it's very simple riff driven songs and you'll see that both of these songs i had to transpose them because they're both kind of in a weird b flat key so i i'm gonna when i talk about the chords they're i'm just gonna say they're in b to make this easier to talk about let's first talk about jumping jack flash so as i mentioned before it starts with b b e a b b e a that's the intro riff now would you think that we're in the key of b and b is the root or are we in the key of E so that B and A are the fourth and the fifth and E is the root? Because if we aren't, if we're in the key of B, which is this, the chord that the song basically hovers on, then for it to keep going back to A in the riff and to keep coming back to B, that would suggest then they're not playing the key of B major. They're basically playing something that's uh, borrowing maybe a brother or a sister chord, you could call it. They're not playing to the major notes of the scale. Well, of course, um, because A is not in the key of B. Right. Uh, But um, so this has always just been a 
point of contention in my own um, understanding of music because in my mind, it's in that would be in the key of E, mm-hmm. right? Right. Um, and it sounds and just, suspended. It suspended in that when I'm listening to that song, it doesn't sound like we're hovering on a root note. It sounds like we're hovering on a fifth. The B would be the fifth. Sure. And that it's not resolving. Yeah. Okay. I gotcha. Um, and I mean, I see a lot of great songs that, like, let's say the chorus starts on the four chord or the five or whatever, and it, it cycles around to the one not and right. it uses the one wisely. So, this is all I think that is. But I think, so technically, and this is kind of where my music theory knowledge, which is very, very limited, runs out. But if I was to see like the sheet music of Jumpin' Jack Flash and it was written all out by an expert, right. they would probably have it in the key of B and then justify it as some mode. You right. know what I mean? Right. Um, and I've always just thought that seems like a more complicated way to look at the world. I did some research to see if I could find what you were talking about, someone who's uh, transcribed it. The yeah. only one I found had it in the key of E. Okay. And, and again, the reason why I think that they went with the key of E is because of the intro, which resolves to E and then A and then B. And then E and the A and the B. But the interesting thing about it is when they hit the D. Right. So when they go to the D, it's not a key change as when John Lennon tends to make when when he jumps up to the D, it might be considered a key change. Oftentimes is. But because they are playing blues chords, D can be considered a sister or a brother chord to B based on the rule of fifths. So if you look at D to A, to E, to B, it's coming down by five semitones each time. Okay. So because they're maintaining the rule of fifths, they're basically getting away with using D in the key of B. Now for the the listener, they might've just lost us, but in, in essence, I'm talking about they're making a box. D to A to E to B is using a box and the only reason why it continues to work without sounding weird or without suggesting that they're changing keys is because of the rule of fifths. If it is in the key of E um, and you have a bluesy chord progression, right? a lot of times what, what you're doing is you're straying from the key by making, you know, you're pl- playing a lot of sevenths. Mm-hmm. So you're playing uh, E7 and A7 mm-hmm. where normally those wouldn't exist in those keys. Right. Because that's kind of those bluesy notes. And the note that makes an E, an E7, is D. Yes. So it's not a huge leap to just play the D chord. Right. I completely agree. So to that end, my conclusion is that the verse is actually still in the key of E only because it doesn't sound like it's resolving when it goes back to the root it doesn't when it keeps going back to b from the a it doesn't sound like it's resolving it sounds like it's suspended therefore i would mm-hmm. have to say that the root must be something else which would be e okay for the chorus either way it's not in the key of e and it's not in the key of b with those four chords d a e b both of them are having to bend their major notes to accommodate those four chords so right. it's inconclusive either way and as, right. you, as you mentioned, it's not that hard for either scale to borrow because the seventh is in the root. You know, a lot of those things. So if you have the D, the A, the B, and the E in the chorus, all, when, when something is then, it's officially uh, a gray area. And right. it's almost like, all right, 
it's like the key of A and the key of E and the key of B. Uh, you know, key of A and key of E are friends. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. And they're all hanging out. And <laughs> e, e brought one of his friends, or I'm sorry, the key of A brought one of his buddies to the party, which was D. And I was like, all right, well, we don't know you. You're not in our friend group normally, but you can you can be here. You know, it's ambiguous whether you're our friend, but we'll we'll accept you. <laughs> Correct. And I here here's my final point on the key here. And keep in mind remedy is even more complicated. But with Jumpin' Jack Flash, I think the thing that makes this whole song interesting, maybe not to the the layman, because you can't necessarily perceive this textually, but subtextually, I think any layman knows that this song feels kind of on edge because it doesn't feel like it's resolving. And that's because of the fact that it's not going back to the root and it's actually in a deceptive key of E, despite the fact that it keeps hitting B. Yeah. I'll just leave that there. Let's jump over to Remedy. And before we jump away from Jumpin' Jack Flash, they do a couple things that's worth noting. The chorus is six bars. Now, Rolling Stones are relatively four bars, eight bars, 12 bars. They're pretty even, but they do a six bar in the chorus. If you listen to the chorus, you'll kind of realize that it's happening because it kind of lingers for just a, just a little bit and then mm. pops back into the, uh, the riff. The second thing to note is that when it, it's going back and forth between two chords, which I call, I call it a two chord groove in the verse. When it hits the chorus... Besides the fact that it's jumping up to a D from a B, which kind of gives it a flavor because it's jumping sort of out of its scale. Um, it also goes into a four chord chorus, which is relieving after being in that two chord groove to hit a four chord chorus is a pretty cool technique. And as a songwriter, I would say quick tip, try to utilize that trick, go from two to four chords or go from mm -hmm. four chords in the verse to two chords. But it, yeah. it's something to be mindful of uh keep in mind it's mimicking what's going on in the verse so jumping jack flashes i was born in a crossfire hurricane i howled at the morning driving rain i was raised by a toothless bearded hag i was schooled with a strap right across my back i was drowned i was washed up and left for dead i fell down to my feet and i saw that they bled i frowned at the crap crumbs of a crust of bread i was crowned with a spike right through my head it's like shakespeare uh -oh. <laughs> and what's the chorus it's all right now hey it's a gas i'm jumping jack flash so what are they trying to say they're trying to say hey uh you're gonna sense some relief in the chorus and we're gonna take you out of a two chord groove or kind of a tenuous two chord on edge and a deceptive key groove into the chorus, which is a rule of fifths, very easy to relate to. And we're just gonna throw some jumping jack flash made up scat lyrics at you, which Steven Tyler made his brand for 40 years thereafter because he just took this kind of crap and ran with it. He loves scat. <laughs> All right. On to remedy. Well, that a good good songwriting lesson there though is is hook them on the first line. Which you which know. line? I was born in a crossfire oh. hurricane. You got it. Yep. And that was Keith Richards saying, "Hey, I was born in World War II. My house was being bombed by the Germans." Right. So that's that was where the lyric came from. Uh, something something good came out of that war. Is right. what you're saying. <laughs> right. So remedy. It's got an interesting sequence. It does a verse, pre-chorus, verse, pre-chorus. Then it kind of hits the guitar solo. Then it kind of gets into the breakdown. I need a remedy. Ooh, yeah. And then a bunch of scat. And they basically. Soul singers. 
Oh yeah. Yeah. Soul singers. It, it's all kind of climaxing in this long, I don't know, 1632 bar breakdown mm-hmm. before, before ending on the, uh, very much iconic guitar riff, which is E E flat B, which is basically four, three, one, if we're talking about the notes of the scale. So it's actually pretty cool, pretty simple, pretty effective four, three, one riff. So here's what they're doing. The whole song is basically going back and forth between B and A, just like Jumpin' Jack Flash. It's not a two chord groove because it's basically staying on B. And then it delivers a verse and then it goes down to A and delivers a verse. So it's not moving quite as fast. It's not really a riff. The riff is not B to A. The riff is uh, E, E flat B and then D, D flat A. So that's just to orientate anybody who's keeping track of the chords here. So you know, you know what we're talking about. Uh, and the chorus is a four chord chorus, very similar to Jumpin' Jack Flash. In fact, it's the same chords, just in a different lineup. It's B, D, A, E. It's a box still, but it's not utilizing the circle of of fifths and the reason why is because b to d is not a fifth d to a and a to e is versus jumping jack flash it's all circle of fifths d a e b they're all separated by five semitones not the case with remedy but yet still the same chords so all right where i'm going with this is that it's yet another deceptive key you might think that the verse is in the key of b and the chorus still in the key of b because they both start on b Not the case. So here's my theory. Every time you hear the riff that goes E, E flat, B, the barrel, 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 they only play that at the intro and they only play it to introduce the pre-chorus. They don't play it at the beginning of the chorus. They don't play it at the beginning of the verse. Let me just quickly reintroduce everybody to how the verses sound. So the verse is, baby, baby, why can't you sit still? Who killed that bird on your windowsill? Are you the reason that he broke his back? Tell me, did I see you laugh about that? So that's the verse. Pre-chorus is, barrel, barrel, barrel. If I come on like a dream, barrel, barrel, barrel. Will you let me show you what I mean? Barrel, barrel, barrel. Will you let me come <laughs> on inside? The, the, the point I'm making here is it's the same chords. They just introduce the riff. You're still in B. You're still going to A, but they introduce the riff. And the reason why that is significant is because when you hear that riff, they're now changing keys. So in other words, when it goes, you're in the key of B, then when it drops down and goes D, D flat, A, you've dropped down to the key of A. You're no longer moving inside of the key of B. You've actually changed keys. Mm. Pretty interesting, right? Yep. And I could, I could, let me go into a little bit more why that is. He starts singing sixth notes. So before that, he's singing thirds and roots. But when he goes into the pre-chorus, he's singing the sixth. And the, again, similar to how you brought up how the seventh is kind of helping to, to bridge. There is no seventh here. The sixth doesn't hold that magic formula. It's just simply in a different key. And he's able to sing different notes because the melody, despite sounding the same, is actually quite different if i come on like a dream that's very different than baby baby why can't you sit still so Mm -hmm. the the point is is that they're highly they're different they're different keys now 
here's where it gets really wacky. When you get back into the chorus and it's again in B, they're they're again putting you into a key, but it's not the key of B. It's I think it's the key of E again for the same reason that Jumpin' Jack Flash is in the key of E. It just makes more sense if you consider it being in the key of E. So the chorus is, can I have some remedy? All I want is a remedy. Remedy for me, please. Because if I had some remedy, I'd take enough to please me. Boom, boom, boom. Well, when they end up on that, I take enough to please me, they're on E. And then to transition back into the verse, they have to hit the E, E flat, B riff to get out of it. So they're to basically change us back into the key of B. They can't be in the key of B already, which is why yeah. I think it's actually in the key of E. Now, this is going to be very difficult <laughs> <laughs> to grasp. I'm doing, my mystery. I'm doing my best. But again, if you think about it, listener, just start to hear the song as if you're not in the key of B in the chorus. And it will make a whole lot more sense that when we get back to the key of B for the verse, that it sounds like we're changing, which it, it does sound like we're changing keys. Okay. We're moving away from the key signature stuff. Yeah. Let's talk about some of the songwriting tricks he's using. He's littered his verses and his chorus and his pre-chorus with questions. If I come on like a dream, will you let me show you what I mean? Will you let me come on inside? Will you let it glide? Can I have some remedy? I feel like having questions in songs is uh, compelling. Yeah. And I don't know. It just always seems to kind of work better than trying to state something. Yeah. Uh, sometimes. Yeah. Absolutely. Look, uh, if you look into movie deconstruction, everything is manipulative and in any scene, the way people act, what's on the background, how they light the scene, what they're saying, what the subtext of what they're saying is. So let me just apply that real quick with the movie. When a character looks into a mirror, whether or not you realize that you're being manipulated into believing that that character is you. Mm. There's a subtlety. And again, directors use it because it just works. We don't know why it works. We don't know how the brain works. We have theories, but there's something that clues the viewer into identifying with that character and thus. So, seeing so the famous scene with uh, in taxi driver, right? Um, that's supposed to be him talking to the audience. We're all pissed off. Hmm. Yeah. So it's similar with asking questions in a song. The second you ask a question, you're basically yeah. having the viewer look into a mirror. You're engaging them in an intimate way because who's to answer that question? I mean, obviously it's rhetorical, <laughs> but that's the way that Bono achieves intimacy. And in one, he's asking all these questions. He's having you kind of ask yourself the question and that's intimate. So that's one songwriting trick I took away from this. The second songwriting trick is, you know, we don't all have the luxury of hiring awesome gospel singers but when you can introduce a gospel singer <laughs> on your chorus <laughs> no that you know you could you could get them down uh at your local church on fiverr um, yeah get them bucks, on sing, this, sing this line it'll take you 10 seconds and yeah. i'll edit it in <laughs> and something else uh, this kind of goes to the later portion of the show but uh you know what what's what's upstream from the black crows obviously the Rolling Stones, but I do think that there's a touch of Led Zeppelin and I would point to some of these lyrics and remedy as well as other songs, but let's just talk about remedy bird, sill, broke, 
back, laugh, dream, glide. For whatever reason, that I can see Robert Plant singing, if I come on like a dream. That It seems that what would you call that? Almost um, sexual. Yeah. Well, but but not the content of the, the lyrics as much as how he's singing it in that sultry. And I'm not even so much how he's singing it, but the notes he's touching on are very much Robert Plant esque. I don't know what Remedy's about, you know. So you know, is it an ambiguous lyric? Is it about uh, sex? Is it about drugs? I don't know. Is it? It's, it's just about vice. It's not about anything in particular. I mean, same thing with Jumpin' Jack Flash. They're both about, in the verse, talking about how strong out they are. Now, Remedy's less straightforward and a little bit more um, suggestive with lines like, why can't you sit still? But they're still evidencing the same emotion, which is, you know, I'm under a weight. And the chorus is just about getting out from underneath that weight. Now, in Jumping Jack Flash, it's just a realization. It's all right. Hey, it's a gas, gas, gas. I'm Jumping Jack Flash. But Remedy is, can I have some remedy? All I need is remedy, remedy for this vice that I'm feeling, whatever, whatever it may be. But it's just relief. Mm. All right. Let's talk about some of the production qualities of these songs, which they're very similar. I already went into some of how the, the Rolling Stones kind of double layered their guitars and, you know, put a lot more thought than I would think they put into their, their music that tends to sound like blues music. I just think Keith Richards straps on a guitar and, you know, Mick Jagger starts scat singing and guy gets on bass, guy gets on drums and they're off to the races, but they actually put a lot of thought into this. If you listen to the record, you can tell that the drums are mixed, not just lowly, but all you can hear is the snare drum. And the reason why that's all you can hear is because there's only so much bandwidth in the mix. So they wanted to predominantly feature this guitar arrangement that they came up with. And I think it does give the song an original flavor. Now, this flies in stark contrast to every almost everything you hear on the, the radio today, where everything is mixed in such a way that it is just vanilla. Mm-hmm. And the drums are always mixed at a certain volume and there's no real creativity going on. But Jumpin' Jack Flash illustrates the lesson that less is more. And uh, this is not so much a songwriting tip as much as it's just uh, an artistic general principle. You know, less is more, whether you're writing the lyric, or trying to overcomplicate the melody, less is more. Comparing the two vocals between Mick Jagger and uh, Chris Robinson, Mick Jagger has a much thicker rasp than say Robinson's rasp, which is almost intentionally thin, uh, as well as his body was almost more intentionally thin than McJagger. <laughs> <laughs> and McJagger was pretty thin himself. Yeah. But uh it, Rockstar it, waif. <laughs> skinny, he was going for. skinny as pencils, <laughs> man. As I mentioned before, Jimmy Miller was the producer that they kind of took on, which gave them all these iconic sounds of the, the albums that you mentioned previously. Jimmy Miller also did a dark song, which is probably what really turned the Rolling Stones onto Jimmy Miller as a producer, which was uh, Steve Winwood's second hit after Give Me Some Lovin'. It was I'm a Man. So if you remember the song, I'm a man, yes I am, when I can, yes I need you. It was kind of the first dark song that I can think of that came out of uh, 67. Of course, by 68, everything was kind of darker. But uh, the first dark song that I can think of is I'm a Man. And the Rolling mm-hmm. Stones said, we want that sound. And then four months later, they're releasing Jumpin' Jack Flash. Another interesting thing is Jimmy Miller 
played some of the drums on Honky Tonk Women. And I've always thought that Honky Tonk Women has a particular, you know, starts out with a cowbell, but it's got a very funky groove to it. And their drummer, uh, forget his name. I actually like him as a drummer, but he couldn't, he couldn't handle the drum, the drum beat. Jimmy, Jimmy Miller just said, look, I'll do it. Step off the plate. And Go back and listen to Honky Tonk Woman, awesome drums, and that's the producer stepping in. Uh, he also played the drums, Jimmy Miller, on Can't Always Get What You Want. Same reason. If you go back and listen to that song, it's not a straightforward beat. It's very hmm. much this wispy little, you know, they're trying to basically keep it an acoustic guitar song. And anytime you don't have a, a powerful drum sound, if someone's just playing guitar, they're going to come up with some interesting rhythms that ultimately would not lend themselves to some kind of 4-4 four, four straightforward uh, drum beat and Jimmy Miller lent his his creativity to that project and it sounds pretty good. Okay, so quick lesson to discuss is the concept of setup and payoffs. Again, this is kind of an artistic lesson. This is present in movies and painting, in a singer, in a guitarist, in a songwriter. But there's this there's the concept of setups and payoffs, which is ultimately like a puzzle. You need to create almost a vacuum so that the listener can basically crave what they're missing and whatever the piece of the puzzle that's missing so that when you give it to them in the chorus or if it's in a movie, when you give it to them in act three, they feel like something clicks. Right. And that's what you get with Jumpin' Jack Flash between the verse and the chorus. If you listen to the way that they arrange the arrangement difference, they bring in that high pitched guitar lead in the chorus. Because in the verse, there is no high-pitched guitar, and there's nothing taking up that bandwidth space in the mix. And they've created that vacuum so that when you get to the chorus, not only are you getting the relief of the four chords, but you're also getting the relief of that space, that vacuum that was created being filled by the high-pitched guitar. You should think that way when writing lyrics, when writing your verse and chorus, when thinking about your arrangements, when when doing any form of art so just the concept of setups and payoffs is something to note okay remedy not much to say i mean there's a lot going on in terms of how they're accenting their guitar riffs but it's going to be difficult to talk about just when you're listening to it make note of how much chris uh what's his name rich robinson i believe yeah rich robinson who's playing Uh the rhythm rhythm guitar he's doing quite a bit back there but it's it's mixed pretty lowly but he's trying his best to provide as many um kicks into the groove of the song and the, the drummer's having a field day because every single time that they go to change keys he gets in there with his, you know, 16th note drum fills. Uh, he's having the, the time of his life. That's probably for a beginner drummer. If, if you want to learn a song where you just get to kind of steal the show every 10 seconds when the key changes, that's yep. your song. <laughs> okay, let's talk real quick about the influences here. So Rolling Stone, uh, inspired by blues. But ultimately, I think that there's, this sound is entirely original. And I'm not willing to give any upstream credit to anybody. Mm. I think that they invented it. That's saying something. Downstream from this, you got heavy metal and it predated Helter Skelter by maybe two months in terms of the Beatles recorded it, started recording it two months after the song. So I would not be surprised that this song influenced Helter Skelter. Now, Helter Skelter ultimately was influenced by Paul McCartney, Paul McCartney hearing that there was some kind of a freak out song that was out there. Just, you know, a rumor of this really hardcore song. I think it was supposed to be the who. Yeah, something like that. But when he he finally heard it, he thought, 
this is nothing. Right. But then he set out going, well, someone should create the ultimate freak out song, which became Helter Skelter. But I still think he was influenced by Jumpin' Jack Flash because this was in the ether. Uh, he couldn't have avoided it. It's kind of cool, though, that he got inspired, if that's true, that he got inspired by something that he heard about that, that right. stimulated his brain into into cons- considering a whole new sound. Exactly. Even though the thing that stimulated it didn't really <laughs> right. actually ever exist. existed. Well, I think I've written half of my songs just by overhearing a melody somewhere and going, oh, that's a great melody. And then when I got closer to the actual song, I'm like, oh, yeah. this song sucks. But what I, what I thought I heard was better. Yeah, maybe you should just drive around in your car with the radio <laughs> at a really low volume That's and see if you make make songs in your head. Yeah, quick songwriting tip. Do that. Trust me, it works. <laughs> there you go. It. Uh, so influences on the Black Crow side, already mentioned Rolling Stones, already mentioned Led Zeppelin. It goes without saying Aerosmith just because they were downstream from Rolling Stones. And downstream from... Remedy, it's basically, uh, it could be anything and everything. I mean, we're living in an age, and I do think this is another reason for winding down the Echo Spire project. I just think that there's just too much contextual reference overload. Like, it's all been done before. So everything being done is just citing something else that's been done. For instance, we, me and you were talking earlier about Billie Eilish, and I said, mm-hmm. it's all been done. You said, oh, I thought it was kind of original. I'm like, well, in my mind, it's it's Ween. It's Ween Redux from 1993. And, <laughs> and there was a thousand other Weens that weren't as popular as Ween, but it's just this lo-fi, you know, garage band wannabe. It, it's sub garage band because garage band is actually, hey, let's put together a performance. But sub garage band is like, let's just throw some rats making noise together with a f- few trumpets and call it art. And, mm. you know, Ooh, that, that's what Billie Eilish is to me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. So having said all of that, and I think we've kind of discussed how Echo Spire is uh, on hold, uh, I won't be talking about Echo Spire <laughs> anymore, <laughs> not in terms of the software. And let's talk about the next episode. Now, our one committed listener, which is an old bandmate of ours, <laughs> his name is Peter. What's going on, Peter? Shout out to Peter. Whoa. Hey, Pete. Hey, Pete. He suggested that we go ahead and do an Oasis episode. So oh. we'll do we'll do that. I'm going to go ahead and highlight two songs, but we'll talk about many more than than these two. Uh, but we'll do Oasis's Cigarettes and Alcohol, which is debatably and definitely my favorite. But I think that is debatably their best song and their most inspired song. And I think all of their songs are just trying to be cigarettes and alcohol. Hmm. I don't know if uh, <laughs> you don't agree. Way, I don't know if most. Of, no, I, I love that song. It's got a little bluesy thing going on. Uh, it's got a positive message about uh, nicotine and uh, alcohol, <laughs> substance abuse, and rock and, uh, roll. Rock and it's roll. About rock and roll. No, well, you know, you know why I like it. Uh, we can wait till we talk about it, but just in general, um, it, having a more literal lyric about uh, cigarettes and alcohol, something specific, as opposed to feeling supersonic, what a, you know, right. a vague, whatever that means, a wonder wall, whatever that means. Exactly. Don't look back in anger about what? Who's Sally? <laughs> yeah, no, right. 
Oasis weren't known for their literal lyrics. Um, but cigarettes and alcohol is. Cigarettes and alcohol, that's a clear message. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I'm going to juxtapose it with Bang a Gong, Get It On by T Rex, 1971, uh, for the obvious reasons. Oh, uh, yeah. Not so obvious yeah. reasons. Well, the obvious reasons is, didn't they get sued? <laughs> oh, well, if they weren't, they should have been because they rip off the guitar riff. Yeah, yeah. But I haven't done enough research to know if they were or they weren't. But I do think that uh, Bang a Gong Get It On T-Rex was the beginning of the end, which was only maybe 10, 15 years after rock and roll started. But I think that uh, T-Rex was already getting into being contextual references, just meaning it, it had already all been done before and they, they themselves T-Rex was having to, they were already downstream from Led Zeppelin. They were downstream from Beatles. It, it had, it had all been done before. In fact, I would say that the very last thing in music history, the very last novelty item was done before the end of the sixties. I couldn't tell you what the song was, but I'd be hard pressed if you were to cite me any song from the seventies, eighties, nineties, or today that I couldn't find you something that directly contributed to it somewhere in the sixties. Could you say that something in the sixties directly related to, uh, I said a hip hop hippie, hippie to the hip hop, (laughs) (laughs) whatever. All right. Rap. You got me on rap. rap (laughs) Yeah, late 70s rap. Wasn't that a new thing? <laughs> you're right. You're right. Rap, you got me. But even still, I think that you could go to uh, Papa was a rolling stone. Bottom, bump, bump. I mean, mm-hmm. even that was bordering on rap, but granted, not the same thing. Okay. Just one. <laughs> yep. So with all of that said, look, we gave the listeners an hour long episode this time. We, not the 20 minute, the 25 minute stuff, because it's a monthly episode at this point. But uh, we'll see if this format works. Uh, I don't mind talking a little bit longer and uh, giving the listener their money's worth. No more edits? Well, yeah. In the past, I have edited out maybe 10, 15, 20 minutes of a conversation just to really narrow it down. But uh, yeah, I might leave this in long form. All right, everybody. We thank you for listening. We'll see you in a month. Leave us some comments. Spotify, Apple, those are the best places to leave them. And let us know if you're listening. And we'll come back at you with some great greatness next month. (laughs) All right, then. All right. See you, Wes.